0: Just a reminder that this afternoon we're going to be delving into biblical church membership and how that relates to this church. So if you're interested in that or even interested in hearing that, um, we would invite you to stay with us. There'll be some food available and we will look into that this afternoon. If we come into Hebrews chapter 13, Um, the title today of the message is not important but it's Uh, biblical relationships um, and what Paul writes on behalf of Jesus um, in instructing us inside the church and how that ought to look in each situation and the reverence that we have for God that he talked about at the end of chapter 12, how we bring that into our relationships in the church. Let's pray as we begin today. Lord, um, whatever is... um, our minds, um, Lord, I pray that as we look at your words and not mine in particular, that what you would do, what you would change, what you would um, fix in our hearts and minds that, that we can carry into our week, Lord, that those would be the things that, that would attach to our, our ears first, um, but our, our spirit and our heart and our soul that they would become our way of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Beginning in the first couple of verses then, in Hebrews chapter 13, Paul says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for in doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So there's a couple of commands here. You've got verses in your notes that kind of cover three aspects of love. Um, the first thing Paul says to the brothers and sisters, to those who are born again, keep on loving each other. So we think of the, the verse in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates. In the Greek, that's not God demonstrated, it's demonstrates. That God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us so that that sacrifice on the cross that is the only way possible for man to interact with God is an ongoing demonstration. It didn't just demonstrate it 2000 years ago, it's demonstrating today that that is the love of God. So John writes 1 John 3:16, this is how we know what love is, that Christ Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for each other. So this Sacrificial love, this John chapter 21, Jesus saying to Peter, do you love me more than these? There's so much in that question. There is, if they all fall away, will you stand, Peter? Because you didn't a few days ago. If you love me more than these, will you be able to fix your eyes on me when everything around you is distracting you? And then there is the reality that in the Greek, Jesus says, do you agape me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I phileo you. So Peter doesn't have the Holy Spirit yet, so that's actually a true statement. A few days later, the Holy Spirit would fill Peter, and he clearly agape loved Christ unconditionally forever, But Jesus is saying to him, will you lay down your life for me? And Peter is saying to Jesus, you know I love you like a brother. And Jesus says again, Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Jesus, you know I love you like a brother. That's not what he's asking him. He's saying, Peter, I lay down my life for you. Will you lay down your life for me? agape love is costly every time you agape love someone else at least two things happen one thing is that in your reserve of what could benefit you personally you've taken from that and given it to someone else another thing that happens according to John 13 is that and not the songs you sing in church and not the church service that you hold and not the particular things that you do to establish the truth but that is what will tell people that you follow me because you can't agape love someone first of all if you haven't received agape love yourself and then it's still a high level sacrifice that the world knows nothing about Um, in your notes there In John 13 34 Jesus says and he introduces this at the Last Supper going into the church because people would be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and form one body in Christ he says a new command I give you love one another as I have loved you so you must love one another so going into the church what Paul is saying as he says Keep on loving one another. He is taking us back to when Jesus introduced this at the Last Supper. And in my Bible, I have a line drawn uh, between verse 30 and verse 31 where he's giving this new dialogue. What has just happened in John chapter 13 and verse 27, Jesus has looked at Judas and says, what you're going to do, do it quickly. And then it says he gave him the bread... And then it says, Satan possessed him. And then, in verse 30, Judas leaves to betray Christ. So this love one another isn't given to the twelve, it's given to the eleven. Judas would never be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but the other eleven would. And then in verse 35, he says, by this they will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So the timing of that is interesting in John 13. He doesn't give that message to Judas. He gives it to the 11. So Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 5, says that when Jesus rose, after that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. We go into Acts chapter 1, and they see Jesus ascend, and in Acts chapter 1 verses 21 and 22, Peter says we have to choose another to take Judas' place who has been there with us from the beginning up till now. It has to be a person that has followed Jesus with them, an unnamed disciple until this moment. Matthias has followed Jesus from the beginning. He has been there throughout the trial. He's there through the crucifixion. He's there at the resurrection. And they chose him, so when Peter says, or Paul says he appeared to the twelve, he's not including Judas. Then there is the second aspect in these first two verses in Hebrews, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. So there is, in your notes there, Paul is talking about the law, and if we went back to the law of Moses, And we went to Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, before John chapter 13, says that all the law is summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second command, which is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Moving forward from John 13, John 14, John 15, and John 16, Jesus explains that loving one another is the way that you love God. So Jesus, in John 15, verse 17, and verses like that narrows it down to the command of God is very short. Love each other. Love one another. If if a church has become unified and matured and not not superior, not super talented, but they, are, they have come to the place where they love one another, then the goal of God on earth in a group of believers has been revealed, has been shown to the world. So we are to love um, strangers. We are to love people in the world. We are not to love the world itself. We are not to make as our relationships and our fellowship with the world but while we are to hate sin, and there's plenty of it to hate, we are to love every sinner like Jesus did. So Jesus went to people that no one else would go to. They accepted him because they knew the first thing that a lost person needs to know is Jesus loves you. I remember a mentor of mine, Paul Herpelsheimer, um, It's kind of like me, he's in apologetics and and he he wants to give you the answer that you need and he wants to show you what verse God says this and he said that they would go door to door and they'd be in a home and it would start to get tense and his wife Nancy would lean forward and she'd say, I just want you to know that Jesus loves you. And the tension would kind of leave the room. So as we share Christ with people, if we share it in a way that is tension-filled only, um, we have to be reminded that we are to love your neighbor as yourself. And as we read the rest of verse 2, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And I think the, the focus of that verse throughout the church age is, what does that mean? When when did angels appear and do they appear now? Have I met one and things like that? I think that's in that verse. But I think primarily Paul is saying, "Don't, don't restrict this in any way. So if we went to Genesis 18 and 19, Jesus, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, and Abraham calls him Lord there, and two other angels come to Abraham, he knows that it's the Lord and two angels. Lot appears in chapter 19 to know that they are angels because he bows down to them when they come. But I, it is certainly possible that uh, an angel can appear and an angel can be assigned and an angel can do something and your simply being obedient to love one another could be about an encounter that you don't, you're unaware of. What Paul is really focusing on is Okay, there's a line of people out there in the world. That person, I can see that we would connect that person. Maybe that person over there is just not in my sphere. Paul is saying, love them all. Love them all. Don't, don't limit in any way. So Jesus, in telling in your notes there, the Good Samaritan, this, this story where, to the Jews who he's speaking it to, he has a priest see this abducted, robbed, left-for-dead human being sees this Jew stranded there, left-for-dead, and this priest is on his way to Jerusalem from Jericho or Jericho from Jerusalem, and he sees him, and he's just, I don't have time for this today. Maybe the guy deserves it. He goes around. The Levite does the same thing. The Samaritan stops what he's doing, delays his business trip, takes care of this man's wounds, puts him on his own donkey, turns around, walks backwards from where he came, taking this wounded person, pays for his needs, pays for room and board and food, says I'll pay for anything else when I come back from this business trip that I'm going to go late to now. Whatever is on his tab, I'll take care of. Jesus is saying this to a teacher and an expert in the law of Moses. Saying to this expert that the Jewish priest and the Jewish Levite left this man for dead and this Samaritan, this half-Jew, this hated-by-all-Jews man, stopped and took care of him. And Jesus, in your notes, asked the question at the end, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, probably fairly quietly, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So this expert in the law is asking expert in the law questions and Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, and then the question back is, well, who's my neighbor? In other words, where can I put up boundaries? Then Jesus tells this story that has to do with racism, that has to do with culture and ethnicity and crossing barriers that the world says maybe you shouldn't cross, and he says, do likewise. Do the same thing. So the Christian response to racism in the culture is not only you're equal and intrinsically valuable in the eyes of God as I am or anyone else, but I will cross barriers to show you that I care for you. I will do more than say we're equals. I will do what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10. Back to our text, verse 3 Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. So this is real for these people. Paul is writing to persecuted messianics. So messianic is the equivalent to Christian. Christian in the Bible is a Gentile who follows Christ, a Messianic is a Jew who follows Christ. So Hebrews is written to Hebrews. It is written to Messianics. And they're being heavily persecuted in Jerusalem. They're losing their homes, they're losing their property, they're being shunned, they're being tortured, they're being killed. And Paul is writing this letter to challenge them to remain faithful any challenges here? Those who aren't being persecuted, treat the ones, remember the ones, empathize with the ones who are as if you were being mistreated with them. That's a message to us today. Do you know that more people are being persecuted for Christ in number today than any time in history? And it is... Good to pray for them. It is good to be concerned for them. It is probably biblical to do more than that. Turn in your Bibles back to chapter 4 in Hebrews. We're going to pick it up in verse 14, and there's a, there's a word in here that comes into the English, the word empathize, that is one of my favorite descriptions of Christ because we read in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 5 that Jesus chose from heaven, from his throne, to lay down his omnipotence, to lay down his strengths and abilities. The only thing he couldn't lay down was his mind. So he was always omniscient and couldn't lay that down. But he laid down everything that he could possibly lay down. He avoided no temptation that could be tempted to him. He avoided no pain. He operated intentionally as a human being like us so that he would intentionally be tempted, intentionally suffer, intentionally be able to get sick, be able to be hurt, be able to do all of these things that that we do as human beings, Um, it says in chapter 5 that he learned obedience through these things. And he's doing all of this so that when we pray through him to the Father, he can say to us from heaven, I've been there. I've felt that. We are never to make decisions based on our emotions, but understand that being made in the image of God, we're emotional. So is God. And Jesus intentionally walked in our shoes. Verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. See, there is, in, there is apathy. It's not my problem. The Levite and the, the, the priest in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, there is indifference. Um, don't know what's going on here. There is sympathy. Um, I'm sorry that you're going through that. And then there is empathy. Let me go through it with you. Let me walk beside you as you suffer. That's what Paul is trying to teach us in Hebrews chapter 13. So in verse 15 here in chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus asked the expert of the law, which one of these was the neighbor? He says, the one who showed mercy to him. So what Paul is saying in Hebrews chapter 4 isn't just that Jesus is saying, I've been there. He's saying, you're hurting there. I'm coming into it with you. I'm coming alongside you, with you. So it is us moving closer to, as we go back to Hebrews chapter 13, those who are, he says, remember them. It is more than just, it's kind of like when Jesus says in the communion service, do this in remembrance of me. If you look deeply in the Greek, it's not saying, remember that I died on the cross. That's part of it. He's saying, remember me. Remember who I was and how I was with you. Remember my journey on this earth for 33 years. Remember our ministry together. Remember everything about me. It's not limited to the cross, even though that would be enough. Verse 4, marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. So you have a verse in your notes there. Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. This is in Matthew 19 and verse 5 with Jesus and in Ephesians 5 and verse 31 with Paul, this is the sum of acceptable intimacy. In other words, that that the intimacy, the consecrating of a relationship, that happens between two people is defined here. One man, one woman, one flesh, one life. So that is what God accepts. So you are responsible for your role in that, I am responsible for my role in that. There are um, descriptions by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 and in Ephesians 5 where, You cannot do this for the other person. You cannot make the decision for them. And there are difficult situations where, as an individual following Christ, it cannot be a home where there is oppression. It cannot be a home where Christ is not allowed into the home. It cannot be a home where Christ is not first in either person's life that is not acceptable to God. But what God is saying through Paul here about the marriage bed, he's talking about the bed where two people are intimate together. Jesus says, and Paul says, and they're taking it from the very beginning, it is for a married couple, and it is for them only. So it really becomes simple when we explain sexuality that God accepts to the world, that first of all, it's not important what I accept. It's important what God accepts. It is not important what I say, it is important what Jesus says. So what Jesus says in Matthew 5 and verse 19 is that what I established in creation is what, is established forever that one man one woman form one flesh for one life and the one life is reliant on two um, but, but the one flesh is a decision made by both so so in genesis it's explained that the reason in part that the woman came out of the man was that they would come back together in marriage. What Paul is saying in Hebrews 13 is that that bed is reserved for that relationship and that relationship only. Verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Do you know someone who struggles with the love of money? I would suggest that you do, that you see that person every day in the mirror. It is a struggle for all of us. We have to be honest with that. There is a desire within us that things attract us, that things can move Christ off of the throne temporarily so that I can have more money and I can have more things and I can do more. Um, So money itself is not the root of all evil. You have that in your notes there. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So in Matthew six thirty three, Jesus says, stay focused on righteousness and the kingdom, on Christ and his kingdom, and I will provide for you everything that you need. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9 and in other places that if a church, and Paul is writing to a church here, Paul is saying that the, you need to command, you need to lead, you need to teach people not to fall into the love of money, and then he comes back with, For it is written, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So in Matthew 6.33, he says to an individual, I will always give you what you need if you follow me. We think of Jacob going to get his wife Rachel and and he meets pre-incarnate Christ there. And until that moment, Jacob addresses Yahweh as God the father of Abraham and Isaac. And he says to Yahweh, if you will go with me, and you will meet my daily needs, then you will be my God. And God says, I will. And from that moment in the Bible on, he is is God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we are very familiar with in the Great Commission, Matthew 28 and verse 20, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, the end of the church, I will be with you, the end of your life, I will be with you, wherever you go, I will be with you. But Paul is speaking to Jews here. So he is taking them back to Moses. He is quoting Deuteronomy, and he is quoting the men will be in Joshua 1, and in Joshua 1, I think verse 5, He says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So he's taking them back to the Old Testament and saying, don't fall in love with money because he promised you he would never leave you and he would never forsake you. In other words, what you need will always be there because the source of what you need will always be there. There was one church in the Bible that fully got this, and it was Philippi. And he says in his letter in 2 Corinthians about Philippi that they gave beyond what they were able to give. And to Philippi, he says, my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So he is telling us multiple times in the church, Paul is, here's one of them, that if you're concerned about being out there making enough money, don't be. Don't be as an individual. Seek first his righteousness and his kingdom. Don't be as a church, because he will never leave you or forsake you. He will let you get to a place where what you need is Christ and all you have is Christ. But he will never let you go beyond that place. Verse 6. So we say with confidence, more quotes from the Old Testament, from Psalms 118. We say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So he's already talked about persecution um, in verse 3. And this is a difficult reality. When we're faced with our mortality, it's hard to, to point fear vertically. But what he's saying here is that's the only direction it can be pointed. Jesus said it by saying that don't fear the one who can take your physical life. Fear the one who can take your soul. So it is challenging to fear upward when it looks fearful around us. But Paul is saying that is necessary because the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? In your notes there, Psalm 23, 4, a familiar verse Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. So this is this young David out in the field at night by himself. He killed a bear once. He killed a lion once. He probably had thieves at different times. Um, David was a shepherd in the place where they would later raise the lambs that they would take into Jerusalem. So he would, David was... Raising sacrificial lambs to celebrate on Passover to point to Christ and he is saying out there probably in some uncomfortable fear Lord even though I walk through the darkest valley I will fear no evil for you are with me your rod guess what that's for the wolf the lion and your staff to keep me clothed will comfort me. And for those two reasons, David says, I will not fear. Verse 7, remember your leaders, he will refer in verse 7 and 17, and these come with heavy qualifiers um, because obviously this wouldn't mean any church leader in any situation, but he says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith that comes with heavy qualifiers there. Um, Those are words that can be pointed directly to these people because Paul was one of their leaders. So Paul in um, 1 Corinthians 11 says, follow my example as I follow Christ. If if you have a leader who follows Christ 99% of the time, don't follow them. That doesn't mean they don't make mistakes, but Paul says essentially about Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. So that's not a line like this, that's a line like this. That's let's follow him together. That's never follow Paul, that's never follow the leader, that's imitate their faith here, which is what they do, in response to following Christ, verse eight, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he marries those two verses together that the person that they have faith in is who you are following. When you follow Paul who is following and imitating Christ, you're following Christ with Paul. When, when, you, when a wife submits to a husband, you submit to a husband who submits to Christ. And if the husband doesn't submit to Christ, verse 8 is all you have. It is then Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The only individual in this church that will never let you down is Jesus Christ. The only person in your lifetime that will never let you down is Jesus Christ. When you can follow your leaders in faith side by side, do it. But it is not them who are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 8, it is Jesus Christ. So follow examples of leaders as they are following Christ. Verse 9, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. And this is in every letter that Paul writes. Apostasy is destroying the church. And it was 1950 years ago as Paul is writing. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teaching. It is good for your hearts to be strengthened by grace. Um, So we looked, I think, last week at Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. It is grace that offers salvation to all people, that also teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to righteousness. So Paul, we read last week, says, don't fall short of that grace. Grace is never a license to sin. Grace is a license from sin. It is not freedom to sin. It is freedom from sin. And Paul is saying here, um, in, in some of his other letters, he is so emphatic on this is letters to Timothy and Titus, for example, that as soon as something is heard in the church outside of the word of God, you may all vote and say, that sounds good too. If it's not in the book, it's not from the book. So, When Paul says things like Romans chapter 3 and verse 4, let God be true and every man be a liar, we could decide wrongfully, but reasonably in this room, we have some things that we should put in place as the way we worship and make sure that they stay there. They're not in the Bible, but they kind of go along with the Bible. When Paul says things like let God be true and every man be a liar, he says, no, stop right there. Because somebody someday said we can can sprinkle babies and they receive the Holy Spirit. Somebody someday said we should eat Jesus' flesh and his blood and it started in a softer way than that, but that's the full belief today. So that today you are cursed if you don't believe that in certain churches. And in other churches you're cursed if you don't believe in constubstantiation. Transubstantiation is that the full body, soul, and divinity of Christ is in the bread and the wine and you're drinking his blood and you're eating his flesh literally. Consubstantiation is that the presence is in it somehow and you're taking the presence in. The truth from the Bible is simply, this is a memorial for Christ. Do it in remembrance of him. So when Paul is talking about grace here, grace only comes to us through the person who is filled with grace and truth, through Jesus Christ, through no rituals as we go on here. Verse 9, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teaching. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which the world is full of today, which is of no benefit to those who do so. So in churches that say, um, do this for Lent, or don't eat this certain food, or some people in the church shouldn't marry if they're going to be leaders, all of these things are rituals outside of the Bible, and they're described in their theology as a means of grace that you receive grace through baptism. The Bible says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.17, that as soon as you believe baptism, as soon as you believe communion, as soon as you believe these other ceremonial things that you touch and intake and practice, as soon as you believe that that will also bring grace to me, you empty the cross of its power. So Paul says in Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies which are based on human traditions and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ how many times I have talked to a person almost every religion will say almost every church will say Did Jesus Christ die for your sins yes he did is he the son of God yes he is not all of them will say that but most of them will Um, do you believe that salvation comes through him yes I do Um, do you believe that it's through faith in him yes I do and then to the question Tell me in your own words why God will accept you into his kingdom. Well, I've been a good person. I've been baptized. i received communion. And the Bible says, no, no, no. You're emptying the cross of its power. If, if your relationship to God is based on religious duties in church, then the cross is misunderstood by you. So there are things that we obey directly from God's word. There are only two, really, that are called rites, and that is communion and baptism. But both of them, Paul strenuously says, these are important. God is telling you to obey them, so obey them. But grace does not come through them. Grace only comes through, Lord I am giving up my life and my rights for Jesus Christ and making him my Lord. That is the only way that grace comes to a human being. So verse 10, We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering but the bodies are burned outside the camp. So listen to the reason Golgotha was necessary. Verse 12, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore look at the practical reality of what they did in the temple in relationship to Jesus Christ. Paul has said repeatedly, um, if we go back to chapter 10 and look at verse 11, it's where he says it the most emphatically, where he's making the point that nothing that they did in the tabernacle... Yom Kippur, once a year, taking the blood of a goat into the Holy of Holies where Christ himself resided. That had nothing to do with taking away your sins. It pointed to the one who would. So in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. His last enemy, um, 1 Corinthians 15, is death. Revelation twenty eleven through 15, he will destroy that at the white throne. Verse 14, by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them at that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds... Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Sacraments are sacrifices deemed necessary by religious churches. This passage in Hebrews 10 makes clear two things. Number one, those sacrifices never took away sins. When Moses and the Levites and the priests and the high priests obeyed all of the sacrifices, they never took away sins. They put sins in doing that on the account of Jesus Christ so that when he went to the cross by one sacrifice for all sin in both directions, finished. And whenever we say, this is also something we can do, God says, no. God the Father is saying, no. My son paid a sacrifice that covers everything. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21 that if there was another way if there was a way to contribute, and I'm elaborating what he says there, then Christ died for nothing. But, in fact, he died for everything. Turn back to Hebrews 13. I want to read this picture again of how important it was for Jesus to die outside the city so that we would understand that grace doesn't come through an earthly tabernacle and through rituals and through religion. Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Even the priests, the high priest descended from Aaron would not go to heaven because they did the sacrifices. They would only go to heaven if they put their faith and their allegiance in Adonai, as Abraham did, Lord and Master. When they made Christ, whom they are worshiping in the, in the tabernacle and in the temple, when they made him Lord, they have the right to eat at the same altar as we do. We read about that in the end of Hebrews chapter 11, where he says, Um, In verse 39, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Moses knew that. The believers in the Old Testament, David knew that. They knew that when when David is speaking in Psalms 23, he says, Surely your love and mercy will be with me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David knew that he was forever saved, not by anything he did in the tabernacle, but because Yahweh was his God. Turn back to chapter 13. Verse 14, for here we do, do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7 as we consider this grace and this city and the purchase of God that is on our lives Hebrews chapter 7 verse 17. For it is declared, you are priests forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. As we've been saying, it could never take away sin. Verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with the oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And in in, he talks about in the order of Melchizedek as he did in verse 17, verse 22. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. John 10, 30, no one can snatch you out of my hand once you're mine. Verse 23, now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing office, but because Jesus lives forever both directions, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Through him the way, the truth, and the life, because he always lives to intercede for them. And this picture in Joshua chapter 3 and this picture in Hebrews 7.25 of Satan and Jesus at the throne of the Father, Satan, according to the Bible, um, John 8.44, John or Revelation 12, he is always there accusing us. He would have a lot to to say about me and a lot of legitimate things to say about me and Jesus would say, he's mine. He intercedes always, forever. So we know that once saved, always saved, but Hebrews 7.25 tells us that's because Jesus is always 24-7 interceding for us. In chapter 8, verse 7, Paul writes, for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, and this is the new covenant, Jeremiah thirty one thirty that is written about the end of Judah, in Judah, as they're about to be taken down by Babylon. And the covenant that they had in the Old Testament told how someone would be saved through Christ. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. You and I are born again. Romans 11 explains this extensively. We are born again through a Jewish covenant. A Jeremiah 31 covenant is what we are grafted into as Gentiles so that in Ephesians 3, Jews and Gentiles can come together and form one body in Christ. Gentiles joining a Jewish covenant made through Jeremiah by Yahweh. Verse 9, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, referring back to the law, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. We've already read this earlier. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest... For I will forgive their sins and will remember their sins. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Once you are forgiven, if you're like me, when I was younger I thought you had to keep being forgiven and keep being saved and all of those things. And it's, it's in our nature to be like, am I saved? Well, 1 John 4 is very helpful because it says, Obedience makes you sure. Not more knowledge, but experience through obedience makes you sure. But Jesus says here, once I've saved you, I remember your sins no more. Did he forget them? No. Does he recall them? No. He doesn't. He never recalls them. And that's why 1 John says in chapter 1, as a Christian, we need to keep that repentance, not to be saved, but to be fresh so that we can fellowship because Christians can walk in darkness even though that they're not lost. And all of this boils down to it is good, it is comforting, it is even strengthening to me to know that I'm always saved. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is that 95% of religion says, well, if you, as long as you keep doing this and you keep doing that and you do this, you'll stay saved. Um, Pentecostalism is, is built on that, that you, know, you, you need to keep doing things, and, and there aren't many religions, honestly, that aren't. But what they do is they rob Christ. Our offerings aren't for him if I'm doing them to stay saved so the primary purpose of once saved always saved as the reason for doing anything needs to be real short Jesus and if I can lose my salvation then it's Jim and that can't be it shouldn't be. It should never be. Turn to Revelation 22 as in verse 14. He says that we don't have the city now. In chapter 12, we came to Mount Zion, thousands upon thousands of holy ones rejoicing in joyful assembly um, when we approach God now. Someday we will actually be there. In Revelation 22, this is just a few verses on. And I like, I don't know what the heading is in your verse, and it's not critical that you have the right heading. Mine says Eden restored. I won't get into the details, but I do think that the Garden of Eden was in Israel. Um, And Isaiah and Ezekiel say that the millennium will be like Eden. Here is John saying that effectively heaven will be like that. Look at the similarities. Verse 1 of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So first of all, in the millennium, Ezekiel and Zechariah, and Zechariah explains more extensively that literally Jesus is sitting on a throne for a thousand years, and there's living water flowing out from underneath the throne. And Ezekiel says, all the way to the Dead Sea. Zachariah says, there's actually two rivers. One goes to the Dead Sea and one goes to the Mediterranean Sea. And everything that this water touches comes to life. So the richest, most um, inhabited by plants and animals place on the earth will be around these rivers. The Dead Sea will be one of the richest places on earth in the millennium because this water is flowing. And John is saying, that will be similar in heaven. Verse 2, down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit. And that's the verse in the Bible where I believe that we will step into eternity that will never end and will be everlasting, but we'll have a concept of time. Look at this verse. Um, Verse 2, down the middle of the the great street of the city on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. So somehow we will be aware of every month on the calendar when we're in heaven. Hey, hey Jim, did you realize it was 4 trillion years that we've been up here? No, I didn't know that. But you're right, I guess we can calculate it. Verse 3, in that just makes you think of songs when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun verse 3 no longer will there be any curse the throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads just like the 144,000 there will be no more night they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, just like in Genesis. God said, let there be light on day one. The sun, moon, and stars weren't created until day four, so the light came from God then, and it will come from God here. For the Lord God will give give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. The largest two religions in Mendota believe that revelation is allegory. Guess what? Allegory doesn't take place. In fact, this must take place. Look, I am coming soon, Jesus says. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecies written in this scroll. Should we read Revelation? Yes. Because of that verse and because of the third verse in Revelation that we will receive a double blessing. We receive a a blessing for reading it and a blessing for reading it out loud. So, you want to be blessed this week, read Revelation out loud in your home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this letter to Messianic Jews that is so beneficial to us. So many doctrines being taught to understand God's relationship to man in this wonderful letter that Paul wrote. Help us, Lord, to take these things home with us. Help us to take the first two verses of Hebrews 13 with us to answer the question, who should I love this week? If we obey those two verses, it will be everyone we meet. And that will be unusual too many people. Help us to do that. Help me to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.